Welcome to the Nopalera podcast, a place where I share the journey of building my company from the ground up, as well as the stories of others in our community. I am your host, Sandra Velasquez, founder of Nopalera, a culture-forward brand that celebrates and elevates culture. Aside from making great products, we are cultural storytellers with a mission to inspire our community to stand in their worth. In this podcast, you will hear a mix of solo and guest episodes around the entrepreneurial realities of building a company. I launched Nopalera from my Brooklyn apartment with no outside funding while working three jobs, raising my child in the middle of the pandemic at the age of 44. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I hope it inspires you to live boldly. After a long career in finance for multinational corporations, Alex Corral started The Accountrepreneur to help emerging companies get a handle on their finances. He noticed that many were unable to scale because they were making most of their decisions based off of gut feel rather than hard data, and they weren't able to raise enough capital or execute their vision because they hadn't been able to translate their vision into numbers. So The Accountrepreneur is here to take over accounting controller issues and also provide fractional CFO responsibilities. This is a really important conversation for anyone out there that is building a business to really understand that in order to have a successful business, we have to understand our numbers. And that means margins. So get a pen, get a calculator. This is an important conversation for anyone out there that's building. Hey, Alex, how are you? Welcome to the Nopaleta podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. This is very exciting. I'm excited to be on here. Do you do many podcasts? Do many people invite you onto their podcast as the finance guy? I've been on a few. Yeah, definitely. The topic is probably not the most exciting, but uh, I find it exciting. I think it's probably one of the most important parts of a business. Like the whole purpose of the business is to run at a profit slash understand your performance. So I, I think it's fun, but I think the marketing people tend to get a little bit more on the invitations than me. Yeah. Everyone wants to talk about marketing. Everyone wants to talk about getting into wholesale, but I'm excited to have you on here because I agree that this is one of the most important parts about running a business. So I think that people are going to learn a lot, but I have to first start by asking this question that I've actually never asked you, which is what in God's name drove you to become an accountant? Because I, as a business owner, I'm happy to just give my money to anybody who wants to take care of this part of the business because I find it so tedious and how do you exist? How, tell me what drove yeah. you to become, how did you get into this business? I think it all starts probably with, you know, all accountants who go down this path is, you know, you start in business school and you know, you want to be involved in a business in some fashion or another. And accounting is really the language of business, right? So if you don't have a good solid base of accounting, it's really hard to do the other aspects, which is the FPNA or the financial projection analysis, some of the financial strategy you don't have a really grounded impact on accounting. And so really I started it because it's a safe career path, number one, and everybody needs accountants and you can go so many different directions with accounting. You know, you can go into tax work, you can go into finance, you can go into controller level work, which is more of month end close financial reporting. And so there's a lot of avenues to navigate a lot of opportunity, but really the base why most of us start, or at least why I started, is because I wanted to understand business at the most detailed level. And accounting really grounds you in the most detailed numbers, the bookkeeping, the accounting, and all like the financial reporting that goes alongside. And you know, there is a lot of complexity that comes with CPG businesses. It's not as easy as a service-based business or a SaaS business. 
And so I think part of it was being able to understand all that complexity, swim through the complexity and get to sort of financial insights, which is the more important part of accounting, right? So that's how I started and really why I wanted to get into this. So did you ever work for like a big firm or have you always been out on your own? No, like a lot of CPAs, I started a big four firm. I started at Deloitte and Touche doing audits of huge, massive billion dollar manufacturing businesses. And so really got in the a lot of inventory knowledge at the really high volume, high complexity level of transactions. I left Deloitte after three years and I went to Groupon, their Chicago startup, and it was right after they had IPO'd. So it was really exciting time and like somewhere where you can go in and it still felt like a startup, but they had gone public. So obviously they were much further along. And I got sent down to Latin America right after they acquired businesses down there. So they acquired eight different businesses in eight countries of Latin America. And so they had accountants in Argentina and accountants in Chile and accountants in Colombia, but no one understood you know, Spanish enough to be able to go down, consolidate get a good process and be able to understand, frankly, what was going on down there. And so I got a lot of experience on building up good processes in Chile and their headquarters and getting everybody to sort of speak the same language from an accounting perspective. And then I got in a lot of detail there about financial performance, right? So not to understand everything that was going on and then got to participate a lot into the strategy of what they were doing in the business and group on it, Latino America. Really enjoyed that, but it was my 26th trip to Santiago and I was burnt out from the travel. <laughs> and so I always say I went back to the big four because I'm a glutton for punishment. I went to KPMG and I did financial due diligence for CPG brand. So working on the other side of it. So working with Mondelez and Miller Coors and Nestle as they were acquiring a lot of up and coming CPG brands. Got to love the space, got to love, you know, this is the tangible aspect of a brand and everything that goes alongside it. And so I always wanted to, you know, potentially be an entrepreneur. Accountants and finance people aren't very risk. Uh, I was going to say and, you're in the business yeah. of like risk management. So to yeah. be an entrepreneur is you're going out on a limb there. Yeah. And I, frankly, I didn't go super risky. I reached out to a couple of people on LinkedIn, a couple of brands and said, Hey, would this be an interesting need? I got a couple of yeses. And before you know it, I had a couple of clients and I was like, you know, right now at the time I'm going to leap, you know, I can always go back to the big four, you know, they're always looking for people. And so I started a entrepreneur from there, and, but I wouldn't have been able to do what I do now without all of the experience that I've gotten from previous experience with bigger firms. Right. And what year was that? So how long have you had the accountpreneur? We started in 2018. So it's been almost, is that five years? Almost, almost five years. So the first couple of years were pretty much what I would consider freelance. So I was the person doing most of the work and I had, you know, another person that was part-time and it would help me. It wasn't until probably year two where I decided there was a lot of need, a lot of demand. And part of it just takes some time to get some of the credibility, get your clients to believe in you, vouch for you. And I think you probably know, Sandra, is like, I think you found us through a referral from somebody else, right? So like, it takes a while for you to build your network and build the confidence, especially when it comes to your finances and letting somebody into that aspect of your business, which is a big thing. 
So it took a couple of years, but we got a lot of demand. And then, you know, we've grown our team to, we're still a small team. We're 11 at this point. That's big. That's uh, bigger than my team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been fun to grow the team and sort of establish processes and then just bring on brands that really match what we're trying to do. Yes. I found you, I don't know if you remember, but I was referred to by Hector from Tia Lupita Yeah, because we were at the Latitude Conference. This was last year. And I was telling him, I was actually with him and one of his advisors, Elliot Began, who you also know, who's big in the CPG world. And yes. was just saying like, I need to change accountants. I need someone who understands this industry, who understands how inventory works and all of this. And and they, you came highly recommended. There was another, like maybe two other firms that other founders recommended to me, but you know, cause founders, we all talk to each other. We, you know, we're like, tell us the truth. Like, did you like working with so-and-so, you know, or did you not? Why not? And ultimately you just came highly recommended and I have never looked back. I'm so thrilled to, that, to, oh, have, it's great to, hear. to have the entrepreneur in our corner. And so I want to ask like for founders out there, because, you know, I didn't start out being able to afford the entrepreneur, right? In the beginning, it was just me. I was making soap in my house and I was using Bench. Do you even know that software? It's, it's only cash. Yeah. Cash basis accounting. Yeah. And I did that for a year and I thought I was doing great. And then I realized, no, I need accrual accounting. <laughs> I had to pay someone to go back and redo all of my finances, which you never want to do that. Founders who are listening, please just do it right the first time. But for people that are just starting out, what is the best option? Is it QuickBooks? Is it zero? Is it a spreadsheet? And when is it time to migrate to a company like yours? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think it, it varies, right? But I think I am very partial to QuickBooks Online because I think it can scale with you. And I'll talk a little bit about why. I think at the beginning, QuickBooks Online, you could probably, if you're going to do cash basis accounting, which I think is okay at the very beginning where you're just getting proof of concept, you are just trying to reconcile a monthly activity, keep track of your expenses, so you can either utilize QuickBooks Online and sync in all your transactions and sort of if you're savvy enough from an accounting side to just tag the transactions, categorizations and do it yourself or hire maybe a beginning level bookkeeper who can reconcile your bank account, maybe has some basic level of understanding of accrual accounting and can potentially help guide you on some of the processes. And then I would say step two is, you know, and I don't want to give a dollar amount of when it makes sense. But when you feel like you're struggling to understand the business from a cash basis accounting, so when you start to build up a lot of inventory, you've passed the point of proof of concept. Now you're selling consistently and starting to move maybe to a next level of accounting, which you know might not be, I think what we do is very detailed on reporting and a lot of investor reporting. And maybe that's not yet the step, but maybe the interim step between somebody who can do a little bit of inventory type accounting and start to like what we call accruals or some accounts payable work and getting the sort of step to QuickBooks online. And then when things are really humming along and you've passed 300, 400, 500,000 in sales on an annual run rate, or you've brought on investor capital potentially too, and they have some sort of demands of accrual based reporting, then it potentially makes sense to bring in a team that is exclusive to CPG, understands all of the inventory accounting. If you are in heavy grocery or anything like that, understands trade spend, understands Shopify, so direct to consumer, some acquisition costs and some of that. And, and you need one level deeper of insights and reporting. So I think that's the evolution is, you know, QuickBooks Online at the beginning, do it yourself or, a, you know, a light bookkeeper. 
second, maybe a little bit more experience of a bookkeeper slash accountant, and a third, more of that controller level support that then can offer, you know, potentially some finance as well, some forward looking projection work. Yes. And I can just say, speaking for myself, things got complicated very quickly. <laughs> like it's, it was like, oh, I'm a beginner. Oh, now things are really complicated. I don't know what's happening. And can I just rewind for a second? Because it was not that long ago, Alex, that I did not even understand what accrual accounting meant. So can you just break that down in like third grade English? What is accrual accounting versus cash accounting? Yeah. So accrual accounting is an accounting term that basically means you're trying to capture the activity and the transactions for the month in the month that they occur. So I'll give you an example for revenue. Revenue, you know, instead of being on a cash basis, which, you know, is purely when the deposits come into your bank account, accrual revenue would be invoicing your customers or using a report that you know you've earned the revenue. Maybe it's not yet deposited in your bank account, but that gives you current month revenue and it's independent of when the cash lands in your account. Obviously, you, you want to collect those AR and your receivables, but you're making sure that you're booking the revenue in the right period. For CPG, another really important piece is inventory accounting. And so the way we think about that is your cost of sales, which is the cost of the products that you're selling, like the combination of the ingredients, the copac fees, and all that goes into your cost of sales. If you put that in and record it on your profit and loss statement on a cash basis, which just means when you pay for it or when they bill you, essentially you're going to get a gross profit that is totally out of whack. And so you could spend 500000 on inventory, but only have 100000 in sales. And so it's not aligned. So when we think about the important parts of CPG accrual accounting, inventory is number one, because what you're trying to do is match your revenue with the cost that it took to with those products to actually get to that revenue. So you sell a product for $10, it actually costs you five. You should see 10 in revenue, five in cost of sales. And it's purely based on what you sold. And so that's probably a concept that is important to know, probably a little bit too detailed um, for right now, but basically that's the crux of it is just trying to match the activity for the month in the month that it occurs. Yeah. And that was something that when I came to you was a disaster and I was like, please help. <laughs> and yeah. with between you and our director of ops, like we were able to fix it also working with SOS, which is our inventory system. And then because you understood that, I think that's also one of the reasons that aside from me liking you as a person and you getting a lot of great recommendations from other your clients who are my friends in the business, it was that you understood the software that we were using. And that was to me also very important. I think that's something for founders to consider because not every company works with SOS or not every company works with whatever software system you're using. So making sure that they understand for me was really important. Yeah. You touched on a really important point there and why I really like QuickBooks Online is, you know, you graduate to a point where you have so much inventory rolling in and out of the business. And so getting an inventory management system because at the end of the day, you're an inventory business. So not having a system in place, you're doing yourself a disservice. And it allows you a couple of things. It's like one, the accounting becomes a lot easier and better, frankly, just you're getting everything on time. It's accurate. But number two, for an ops person or who is ever running, so you can, on a real-time basis, understand where all your inventory is. Because, I mean, as you know, a lot of 3PLs aren't great with reporting co-packers, if they're holding inventory, they're not so great at reporting it. So you having your own count of what you should have on hand becomes incredibly important. 
Yes. And that was something that I went through so many different inventory management systems and ultimately settled on SOS and it's affordable, it's working, it connects to QuickBooks, right? So we're happy because that's something that I struggled with. That was one of my biggest pain points for like the first year and a half was like the inventory management system. So I'm happy that we landed <laughs> until we have to upgrade yeah. to NetSuite, which I'm, I know that we're both trying to put that off <laughs> for as long as possible. Yeah. And I think that staff is important because QuickBooks Online combined with an SOS inventory or even another one called Deer Inventory, you can scale up, in my opinion, to 10, 15, $20 million, depending on how complex the supply chain is, right? If it's very complex, maybe it's sooner you move to something else that's like a NetSuite. But for the cost, QuickBooks Online plus an inventory management system compared to a NetSuite, which is incredibly expensive for an emerging brand, I think that stack can get you to a level, you know, frankly, very far along in an emerging brand. Yes. And I know some of your other clients use SOS. Do any of your other clients, are they also the manufacturer? Because, you know, I used to work in CPG. Van Leeuwen was my last day job that I worked for and they use NetSuite because they're manufacturers. So they're buying raw ingredients. They have an ice cream factory, right? So it makes sense for a brand like that to have a really complex inventory management system. Do you have clients that are using SOS that are manufacturers? We do. We have two of them. And then one that is actually, they are a Hulkmacker slash a brand and they are going to use Deer Inventory. So that allows you to do all the complex things that you need to do, which is establish labor rates or overhead rates to your to your manufacturing of your bill of materials. It becomes a little bit more complex, certainly, and there's a lot of setup that needs to happen. But for the most part, these inventory management systems are pretty powerful that they can do most of the things that a full NetSuite setup could do. The only like the tricky part is NetSuite is an all-in-one tool. So you, all the financial reporting happens there, plus the inventory stuff in there. But I really feel pretty, pretty uh, adamant that you can scale up to a good amount using these inventory systems. I want to ask, I mean, obviously we can't reveal, you know, people's personal financial situations, mine included, <laughs> but yeah, like in terms of some benchmarks so that people understand, like, these are the questions that I had when I was starting my business. Like what percentage of my business should be my employees? What percentage of my business should my marketing be, you know, of revenue, right? Cause everything is related mm -hmm. to what you're making. So I'm going to say it's going to be different for different categories because, you know, beauty is a high margin category, you know, in beauty, we sell direct unless you're selling beauty into grocery, like you're going into Whole Foods or Sprouts or whatever, and you're using a distributor in between you and the final retailer, just for everyone to understand there's different models depending on which way you're going to go. But if you can give us some kind of benchmarks, like, so what percentage of our business should your marketing cost be? Even a range, I think is helpful because <laughs> I've heard yeah. literally every answer in the book. And so I would love to hear from you because you are actually in people's books. Yes. You can actually see the range. <laughs> so let's march down. Sort of like, I think you're probably tired of hearing me talk about contribution margins. The only thing I talk about. <laughs> Never. I'm all, but, Every but, time I'm like, explain it to me again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So contribution margin, if we think about that. So contribution margin is really what's left over after you make a sale. Right. So starting from revenue and then deducting trade spend, if you have trade spend or discounts minus your cost of sales typically gets you to what we call gross profit. Most CPG businesses are pretty well established when it comes to gross profit. Then you subtract the cost of freight fulfillment to get it to your customer and also the variable paid spend to attract that customer. And so that's usually how we calculate contribution margin. And that's really the dollars left over from making a sale. So 
if we march down that formula, what I usually think about for trade spend discounts, again, this is not so much geared towards beauty because you know, you're not investing a ton in trade spend. A lot of that is negotiated up front. It's sort of built into your pricing. But for those who are CPGs selling into the Cahies, the UNFIs, direct to call foods, sprouts, et cetera, typically, you know, you're going to see somewhere between 15 and 25% of gross revenue is spent in trade or discount activities to promote your product push it off gels, velocity, et cetera. That's a big swing. 15 versus 25 is a lot. So if you're a leaner brand and you're bootstrapping and you don't have as much investor capital to really go as fast as you can, probably going to be somewhere in that 15%. 25% I've seen for businesses that are really starting to push the pace, trying to get their items off shelf and prove out their velocities. What about D2C? Asking for a friend here, Alex. <laughs> D2C... I think it's a little bit of strategy, right? So some D2C companies are very much at the sort of lower price all the time and they use sales as truly like, hey, this is a call to action. Some brands are priced higher and are always on discount, right? So I don't know if I can give a benchmark discount, but if I were to think about where you probably want to be as a brand, like regardless of that pricing strategy and what works, what we need to think about is what's gross profit going to be. And I think for direct-to-consumer, being 60 to 80% gross profit direct-to-consumer is definitely feasible for most brands because of how high the price is you're going direct. So you have a high price and a low cost of sales. So I, I would say I don't have a great benchmark for D2C because everyone's pricing strategy is a little bit different. That makes sense. Yeah, but that's still a good range, right? So in other words... If you're at a 30 gross profit D2C, then there's something wrong. Your products are too expensive to make. You're not charging enough at the retail level, right? The SRP. And then you're also not allowing yourself to have any room to wholesale. <laughs> because yes, exactly. That's a big thing that I talk about with a lot of founders is they've created their product. They've priced their product. They're selling their product. Now they're like, I want to wholesale it. I want to get into retailers. And I'm like, can you afford to? Mm -hmm. Just wholesaling in and of itself does not equal profit. If you have not priced it correctly, if your cogs are not low enough, if your price is not high enough, right? You need that distance between the two to have exactly. to, to put a middleman between you and your customer. Yeah. Not to mention, like if you go back to the D to C example, if you're 30 to 40% gross margin business for direct to consumer, then you obviously still have to pay for the cost to acquire that customer. Right. And so for typical D to C brands, you know, if you have a return on ad spend that would be four to one. So for every dollar you're spending, you're generating four dollars. You're not going to have enough margin to be able to cover the cost of the acquire that customer and also the cost of freight and fulfillment to the end customer. So if we go back to being at that 60 to 80 percent growth profit, it's not like all that goes into your pocket. Right. Amen. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. So if you're yeah. at the 60% gross profit, you know, subtract out 15% that you spent to cost to acquire that customer or 20% or depending on what your ROAS is, minus freight and fulfillment, which could be another 15 to 20% of revenue. All of a sudden you go from 60, march down, now you're at 40, march down past freight fulfillment, now you're at 20. And then that's what we call contribution margin. You have 20% left of your dollars to be able to spend on your other expenses, salaries, rent, rent, accounting, okay. uh, all, you know, all those types of fees. And like, you can see why it starts to sort of 
whittle down to a smaller percentage and all of a sudden now you have not enough dollars to pay for the rest of your fixed expenses. Right, right. And I think that this is what, from my perspective, what keeps so many new businesses small is because they haven't set themselves up to be able to scale because they don't have the margin to scale. So they're Mm -hmm. always going to stay small. They're always going to stay making the product in their house or doing their own shipping because they have no room in there to pay a fulfillment center to pay the account entrepreneur or whatever, right? And so I always just tell people, there's no such thing as too high of a margin. The higher the margin that you can possibly have, this is the only way you're going to be able to scale. It's, you're not being greedy because you don't get to keep it all mm-hmm. to your point. It's not all going into your bank account. Exactly. It's like going to a restaurant where you're paying $10, $11 for a beer, right? But you're like, this is ridiculous. I can go and get this but you know they have all the overhead to pay for. They have all of the staff they need to pay for. And it's very similar to CPG. It's like, yeah, I had to keep 60% of what you sell, but I have all these expenses that go into running this thing. Yeah, they have to pay for the store. <laughs> Uh right the real estate the light bill the employees the employees 401k plans right everything so i always tell people like you can either open your own store or you can and pay employees or you can give a higher margin to a store right because either way it costs money yeah are there some like big mistakes like if you could warn up-and-coming brands please don't make these three mistakes or this one mistake or whatever it is like what are some of those pieces of wisdom and learnings that we can hopefully save people from having to learn the hard way. Yeah, you nailed it with the margin. I can't count the number of brands that have said, you know, we're at 30% gross profit right now. And then they show a slide, you know, their deck or their own planning materials. That's here's how we get from 30 to 60. And I can promise you getting from 30 to 60, maybe it happens every once in a while, but my sense is maybe not going to happen. And so like maybe getting from 50 to 60 might make sense, but I think setting yourself up in the beginning with a good product margin within reason, you can't outprice yourself from the market, but I think that's the number one mistake. If I could also take a step back into food and beverage land or grocery land, it is investing significantly in relationships where you have a massive free fill with a different retailer. So I see a lot of emerging CPG brands who are excited to go into Sprouts, but don't realize that Sprouts is going to charge them $80,000 for a free fill. Yeah. And the profitability of that relationship won't be recouped for two years. Yeah. That's if things go well. So I would say don't sink yourself from a cash flow perspective right away. Give it time, build yourself up to that before committing to something like that. So it's It really goes in lockstep of just optimizing contribution margin, product margin, trade spend, advertising, marketing, freight and fulfillment. When you say invest in the relationship, Alex, I used to work in grocery and it was like free fill left and right. And it's such a brutal industry because retailers just expect it. And so many brands can afford to do it like big brands, you know, Mm -hmm. how is there a way around that? Like how is investing in relationships help you with that? Like you're doing half a case refill or 50% case instead of a full refill, or how do you get out of that? <laughs> I think one, it's evaluating like each individual opportunity and not being too excited about jumping into a relationship because it's going to get you a bunch of doors. It's like you have to go through and understand how much do you think you could sell through in this business. If you're selling six SKUs per store per week, you might be able to recoup that fairly quickly. But if you're a slow moving category, call it, you know, the spice category, olive oil, olive oil, spices, <laughs> where you're selling one unit per store per week, it could take you years to recoup that from a PO perspective. So it's like understanding and maybe also having potentially a broker who understands that particular relationship 
and negotiating as best as you can. I've seen companies who went from, like what you mentioned, a full case to half a case while then committing to doing additional promos during the year, which is a much better way to drive trial and it actually benefits the consumer versus just the retailer or the just distributor. Just the retailer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that is ultimately the goal of all promotions is for your customer at the end goal. It's not for Kehi and Unify. <laughs> no, um, exactly. And I just want to highlight something you said that I think is important for all brands like CPG, beauty, whatever, which is that the discernment of whether this relationship is important right now, because brands do, especially new brands, get really excited about the number of doors. Wow, we're going to be in 300 Sprout stores or a thousand Albertsons. But are you going to make money is the is mm-hmm. a real question yeah. you should be asking because we're running businesses, not charities. And I have said no to hundreds of retailers. And it's scary, right? Because you feel like you're passing up opportunities. But ultimately, like what I think what I also learned is not just about the margin and like the velocity of your product, but also the operational money that it's going to cost you to work with this retailer. Mm-hmm. Again, this is like boring stuff that no one ever wants to talk about. Everyone's like, how do I get into Nordstrom? I'm like, do you have an EDI? Do you have an ops person? Yeah. Do you have someone who's never going to go on vacation because these orders need to be accepted within 24 hours and then the ASN has to go out, then the invoice has to go out and it's very labor intensive. No one ever talks about this. It is 100%. And so operationally, do you have that money to pay that person who's going to do that unless it's going to be you, in which case that's your full-time job. Yeah. And then do you have the money to pay for all the inventory that's required for it? Because that's the other piece is like all the cash drain that happens by building up inventory. And so you're totally right. And one of the the really good examples is Walmart or Target approach Costco, approach a lot of emerging brands. And it's exciting. It is 2000 doors. It is 3000 doors. But thinking about what the overall long-term strategy is, is really important because what I always say to entrepreneurs and CPG businesses is two years from now, Walmart will still be there and probably you'll be way better equipped for it after you've proven out your model, potentially at smaller amount of doors, you have some capital, you have the team behind you. Walmart's going to be there, especially if you're doing well. Costco's going to be there. It's not like they're, you know, you tell them no and all of a sudden you're off their list forever. It's more of when is the opportunity right? Yes. And I love your point that Walmart will still be there. And the question is, will you? Because yes, that, they only care about point. it. They're still there. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just it reminds me of there was a clip that ABC showed of Shark Tank of Mark Cuban saying like, I'm going to still be rich after this. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, who needs who really? You know what I mean? You're, exactly. So, all right. Moving on here to rapid fire, Alex. Thank you so much. This is so insightful. We could talk more. And I love just telling people the truth about this, because like you said in the very beginning, this is a foundation of business. Everyone wants to get excited about marketing and product innovation and like email lists and SMS and like photography. But if the money is not there, you don't have a business at the end of the day. You know, you have a hobby and that hobby, like how long do you want to sustain it? And we know that the percentage of businesses that make it after the first year, after the fifth year is small. And this is a reality. Mm -hmm. This is why it's so important to have a really strong foundation. And the financial piece is a huge part of that. So, but moving on to more fun stuff here. (laughs) What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? It doesn't have to be related to finance, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, I would say definitely one of the things that I struggled with early in my career was communication and clear communication. 
a lot of the times I think as subject matter experts, I think we can get so in the weeds and in the details of every aspect because we've been looking at a certain problem or a certain issue in like so many directions. But I think what I was given some feedback on early in my career was, hey, you need to distill this to the most important thing that you need to deliver to whoever your audience is. And so if I'm talking to a founder, I can get into all the inventory costing, I can get into all the accounting stuff, but you know, you can sort of see everybody glaze over as soon as you do that versus, okay, let me distill all the information that we've gone through and then deliver clear, concise communication action to our teams. And I think we can leverage that for not only like finances, but really like, how do you communicate with your team on the most important things? How do you communicate to your clients? How do you communicate to your retailers or everything like that? Because at the end of the day, we all have sort of limited space in our head. And so being a clear communicator and communicating the most precise way is probably the best skill that I've had. And I think, frankly, it's been probably one of the reasons we've been successful is because I feel like we do a good job now of providing really like the top things when everything else is a little bit noise. I love that, Alex. I'm like executive summary for the win. Yeah. Give me the bullet points. What are the top three things I need to know? Everything else is secondary. I might get to it. I probably won't. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because there's always room to go down into the details. Yeah. But coming back up after going all the details, you'll lose the forest for the trees. Yes. I love that. Describe your perfect day. My perfect day. So I think perfect day, most days now with two kids, starts off a lot slower than it used mm -hmm. to. So I try to get up early, work out. That would be ideal. And then get everybody up. I won't give myself all the credit. My wife is by far the most helpful person. But getting my three-year-old up, getting him ready for school, being able to hang out with them, have breakfast, have a cup of coffee, and just sort of not start the day super rushed. And I think a lot of that comes from just planning your days out and just being productive with the time you do have. And it's funny, like you become way more productive after you have these constraints of, hey, I have to get my kid to school and I have to pick them up. And so your rest of your day becomes streamlined somehow. And you start to realize, wow, I used to waste a lot of time. So it was like getting my toddler off to school, getting back and being able to jump in with the team and go through any of the problems that we're having from the business. But the fun part for me is growing the team now and watching them sort of take on the task and taking on the complexities. And then probably cutting out around four, picking up my toddler and then going out to the park and hanging out with them and, and then having a family dinner. It's, I still find it exciting, but it's gotten a lot less crazy than used to be living in the city and, you know, doing all other things. Yeah. I love that your perfect day included work because <laughs> I'm yeah, like, I my guess perfect right. day does not include work, but listen, <laughs> props to you. Much respect. Okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe fill that time in with a round of golf instead. And okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then just last question here is what do you want to be remembered for? Wow. Heavy hitting questions. <laughs> I think I'd like to be remembered in really all aspects, just trying to be helpful and add value as much as I can. Like for professionally, I strive to be not a transactional vendor, right? I want to be considered your advisor where you come to me with problems and we sort of work them out together. And when you talk about a entrepreneur, what I hope is that it's not like, oh yeah, they close our books and give us this report. It's more of, they do do that, but more of it is advising us, pointing us in the right directions, like having a good discussion on what's happening. And I think part of that, you know, as founders and CPG founders, sometimes it's hard for them and management teams to 
really talk about the entire business with anybody, with their teams even, with their families. And so talking about it with us who understand the finances and all that is what I hope is that, you know, we're considered sort of a trusted advisor. And then from a personal perspective, a little bit of the same thing is that at the end of the day, you're, you're there for somebody to offer advice. You're there as sort of a, a genuine person and really just overall good person that you give people good vibes, you know, that's, that's the, that's the key. Well, I love that, Alex. Thank you so much for your time. This was super valuable and helpful to me and I know to so many people. And I do have to ask, and we'll put all of your contact information in the show notes, but are you accepting new clients? We're always looking for good businesses that fit, fit our work style. And I think, you know, we're fairly, like we evaluate the relationship before we go into it. And it has to be a fit for both sides. And we're totally transparent sometimes. It's not a good fit for either side for whatever reason. But yeah, always evaluating different brands and if they have the need, like what I always say is, you know, I'm here to, to provide any advice. But yeah, anytime there's a brand that, that can use some help, we're here. Thank you, Alex. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here with us. Remember to leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening from. Spread the word so we can impact and grow the community. If you are an entrepreneur looking for more real talk and resources, you can join my entrepreneurial newsletter from my personal website, sandralilavelasquez.com, but also visit nopalera.co to pick up your favorite self-care items for yourself and your loved ones. Join the Nopalera mailing list to be the first to hear about new products, exclusive promos. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok at nopalera.co. Stay resilient.